Good morning, loved ones. I do want to invite you to join me in John chapter 16 as we continue our sermon series through John's gospel. John chapter 16, today's sermon text will start in verse 16 and read all the way through the end of the chapter. So John chapter 16, I want to invite you to worship with me uh, as I serve as our voice of reading God's word. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they had wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's ask his help. Father, we're thankful that we have the joy and privilege to gather together today on this, the Lord's day to be able to worship Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you intend to reveal about yourself 
through your word today. We ask it in Christ's strong and mighty name. Amen. Well, today's sermon title is Christ, Our Eternal Joy and Peace. Uh, Today's text records one of the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, It's less than 24 hours away that Jesus is going to be crucified. And then three days later, he will rise again. These parting words, or as some have referred to the final discourse or the upper room discourse, afford us a wonderful opportunity to know what's in the heart of Jesus as he was prepared to die. What were his disciples, his closest earthly followers, what was, what was happening in them as they were struggling through these realities? And then to discover the resurrection realities of joy and peace in Christ. And so uh, we have two parts to today's outline. The first is Christ is our eternal joy. And the second, as you can probably already guess, is going to be Christ our eternal peace. So Christ, our eternal joy, verses 16 through 22. So as you uh, were were worshiping with me through the reading of God's Word, you may have picked up on a phrase that was used often. Jesus said, a little while. It's used seven times in four verses here in this text. The disciples still didn't understand the meaning for a little while. And they would not, they didn't, they didn't understand this and they didn't know that uh, they would not see Jesus or that they would not see him again. Or perhaps another way for, to understand the question that they asked might be uh, them to ask him, where are you going and what are you going to be doing? That Jesus was going to leave them was not something that he had just sprung on them in this moment. We know that just from the immediate context of last week's sermon where Jesus said to them that he was going to go away. And not only that he was going to go away, but it would be to their advantage that he was going to go away because he was going to send the helper, the helper, a clear reference to the Holy Spirit who would convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So that's the immediate context that Jesus had been preparing them for what was going to take place. But we can even zoom out in John's discourse, and there are at least four other occasions where Jesus said that he would be with them for a little while longer. However, this time there's just a bit more weight to the physical presence of Jesus with them. We know that because we can read ahead and we can see that the betrayal, the beatings, the trial, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, all of this is within 24 hours to the next three days. Jesus the Messiah, God's anointed one, the Son of God, knows that he has but a few hours left before fulfilling what God had sent him to do. But his 11 disciples, remember Judas was not presently with him. He had already left and was in preparation of gathering the officials to betray and hand Jesus over to them. These 11 disciples remained with Jesus and their question with him in this moment is, 
what is he talking about? Jesus knew they wanted to question him. And he also knew that they didn't understand. So he pulled them a little closer to him. Rather than scolding them in this moment, he took the moment to talk about joy in the midst of grief. Yet this reference was not the kind of sorrow that uh, Christians should experience when there's all kinds of grief. This was, a, this was the grief that was going to come as the re- direct result of Jesus dying on the cross. God's son about to die. And he tells them, you're going to weep and lament. It will be a time of great sorrow and anguish for his disciples. The one whom they had spent the better part of three years with is going to no longer be present with them. The events of the crucifixion, they're going to unfold exactly as God had planned. And precisely as Jesus said, yet it would be different than what the disciples had envisioned the crucifixion would play out. Isn't this often how we think about sorrow and grief and suffering in life? That's not the way I planned it. It's not, it's not what I would choose. It's not what I would want. I would... I'm I'm happy to have sanctification. I'm happy to grow as a disciple, follower of Jesus Christ, but I would choose a different pathway other than what God has planned and what Jesus has precisely said. And for them to weep and lament over his death, even when it is necessary for the forgiveness of their sins, is still very much in accord with humanity. And as we will see shortly, death will not have the final word. So Jesus to his followers, you are going to weep and lament. And then for the world, they're gonna rejoice. They will rejoice over your death. I mean, the death of Jesus, we're here, here we are in the Advent season. The death of Jesus has been the long sought after desire of the world. You remember Matthew chapter 2, King Herod, in a deceptive way, remember what he asked the Magi? Where is he born King of the Jews? Let me know so that I too may go and worship him. Well, the Magi found their way to worship Jesus. And the Magi didn't return back to Herod. And then Matthew chapter 2 records that uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and warns him not to return to Egypt. And for a couple of reasons. One, to preserve the, the, the life of Jesus, but also to fulfill the scripture that out of Egypt he called his son. And the scripture says that They remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. So as long as Herod was alive, the imminent reality 
that he sought to kill Jesus. I mean, there's lots of examples that we could grab a hold of too in the Gospels that teach us that throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, people sought to capture him and put him to death. But he was always able to elude them, slip through their grasp, make his way somewhere else. But now, in God's kind providence, it was his time to be handed over. It was his time to die, and the world would rejoice in his death. You will grieve. Jesus returns back to this. Again, he says, he he again returns to the grief that they will experience, but says this time, your grief will be turned into joy. This phrase has um, Old Testament beginnings, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 13, for I will turn their, uh, their mourning into joy and will comfort them and will uh, give them joy for their sorrow. Or Isaiah chapter 61, this prophecy of the anointed one, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that God may be glorified. Luke chapter 4, in the synagogue, Jesus, picking up the scroll, reads from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then Jesus sat down and said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. So, sorrow to joy. For his disciples, he uses the picture of the anguish and joy of a mother when a newborn baby is birthed. I've had the privilege of being in the labor and delivery room twice. I've witnessed the anguish, not in a lived experience, obviously, but I've witnessed the anguish that goes on. I I saw the body do things that I didn't think were humanly possible. The pain in childbirth is a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, yet there is joy when the baby arrives. Every mother longs to hear the cry of the newborn baby, to see the child. And in the moment, the sheer joy of life in this little one seems to remove all of the anguish and experience that they just encountered. And Jesus says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. In Psalm chapter 30, this is a prayer of thanksgiving over the deliverance from death. Here's what David prays. 
Though weeping may last for the night, there will be a shout of joy in the morning. In the morning. And then later he says, hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. A few Psalms later, Psalms 42 and 43, the psalmist noted a time when he used to lead the procession with a voice of joy and thanksgiving. Yet Psalm 42 and 43 record that the soul is now in despair. Three times in these two Psalms, he asks, why is his soul in such despair? And three times he remarks in a futuristic sense that yet again, I will praise the Lord. Yet again, I will rejoice in God. He will rejoice in God, his exceeding joy. Because joy is not in the absence of suffering, Joy is in the presence of the Lord. And the joy spoken of in the Old Testament, picked up here in John's gospel, is a resurrection reality for those who grieve and lament the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. One New Testament example, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Though death is going to be the last enemy, death will not have the final word in the life of the Christian. It's life. It's Christ's life. There is joy in his life. Therefore, there is eternal joy. The joy that they will receive is from God. This is not some manufactured joy that they are creating in themselves. It is a joy given to them from God. The joy they will experience will come when they see the resurrected Jesus, the joy that will be kept for them will be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus is saying here, no one, no one will be able to take away your joy. Josh is going to cue up a video here. And as he's getting this video ready, it's a 30-second clip um, I thought about just sharing with you the contents of the clip, but I think it's better if you actually see and hear. So what's happening here, this is, this is a 30-second clip of some Christians in Mataguri, Nigeria, so the northern part of Nigeria. And you may not be able to see clearly, um, but, but when this video is, had, uh, was taken, uh, their church had recently been destroyed. One of their members was killed in the process of this church being destroyed. And here, this, the, the, the very next Sunday, the saints of the church were gathered together worshiping and praising Jesus. So none of us here are going to be able to understand what they're saying. I asked, like, what, what, what were they singing? And in this video, they're singing praise to Jesus, and, in their, and they are remembering the saints who've gone before them, who've suffered for the sake of Christ.
So I don't think any of us would have faulted them if they decided just to stay home that week. I don't think any of us would have really had much to say if they thought about worshiping in a different city. And yet, here they are, death being fresh, in the midst of ruin, and saying, our joy is still in Christ. Our joy is still in Christ. The world doesn't know that kind of joy. All along the way in John's gospel, he has been preparing us for the crucifixion and resurrection. In an eternal sense, as we, as we live in this present age, there is grief. There's anguish. We have sorrow over sin, the sin which we see in our own heart and the sin that we see as the world becomes more corrupt and ensnared. There is anguish as we experience suffering and as we see our brothers and sisters suffer. But hear the words of Jesus here. Take comfort in the words of Jesus. There will be grief, but he is going to return and no one will take away your joy in Christ. Eternal joy in Christ is as certain as the eternality of Christ. Number two, Christ is our peace. Verses 23 through 33. In that day is a phrase that we read throughout the New Testament and is a reference for the last days or the end of the age. But here, D.A. Carson notes that Jesus is referring to the time period after his resurrection as the end of history. And Jesus says, ask in his name. Up to this point, the disciples had not made a petition to the Father in the name of Jesus. Had they ever asked a question before? Of, of course, lots of things that they asked him, but they had not invoked the name of Jesus. Once Jesus rose from the dead though, they would be able to pray to the Father and pray in the name of Jesus. Here's one example of Jesus mentioning in this earlier in John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's a precious promise from God the Father that comes as a result of the finished work of Christ through the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus as the perfect human representative that constantly makes intercession for us before the Father. It's a resurrection reality. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He will give it to you. This is one of the most, or one of the many precious resurrection realities for the disciples and all future followers of Christ. The gladness of God to give his people what they ask of him in Jesus' name. The world, he knew that the world would soon be in chaos with the death of Christ. The world in which we live is chaotic as well. But the resurrection of Jesus brings a certainty 
a finality, as it were, to ground our faith and secure us regardless of the chaos. We don't have to be controlled by our fears. We don't have to allow the uncertainties of this world to dictate how we live. The world is looking for answers in their politics and personal agendas and self-designated worldviews. But Christ offers something better. He offers himself as our security. The world is fragile with their misplaced hope. Christ is our anchor. The world lives as, as if there is no tangible answer for our present condition. The Christian lives looking back at the resurrection of Christ and what he accomplished as he conquered sin and death and gave life while simultaneously looking forward in hope toward the return of Christ. There is no other explanation for how a Christian can live with peace in the midst of this broken and troubling world than to seek the one who sent the one to overcome the world. So ask in the name of Jesus and he'll give it to you. So for the remaining 11 disciples, Jesus is modeling the relationship within the Godhead. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit seals the work. Jesus speaks here with certainty. In that day, there will be no more questions. All will be revealed. So let me ask you, have you closed with Christ? Have you asked God to save you based on the death and resurrection of Christ? There is no other pathway of glorifying God than for Christ to save you. There is no other way for joy to be complete than to be saved by Christ. Peace with God can only come from God through the blood of Christ for you. Like Christ can save you. Yes, he can save you. So ask him. Verses 25 and following, Jesus provides a little bit more clarity. The disciples always had a challenging time fully grasping what Jesus said to them concerning his relationship with the Father and what he was going to suffer. The suffering for Jesus, or, or excuse me, the time for uh, Jesus to suffer is now at hand. He tells them he's leaving the world and returning to the Father. This section underscores that really that words and proximity do not save you. For example, Judas, if, if words and proximity could save you, then Judas, who listened to everything Jesus taught and was close to him, would have been saved and he wouldn't be currently seeking to betray him. You must believe in Christ. You must be loved by God and you must love Jesus. The Holy Spirit must quicken your soul. This section also underscores the providential patience of God because the disciples wouldn't fully understand the words of Jesus until post-resurrection. So one quick note on Jesus saying that he came forth from the Father. Again, this was not the first time the disciples heard this phrase, but again, there is an added weight here given that Jesus is on the cusp of the crucifixion. This is what he had been sent for. He was soon to accomplish his purpose for being sent. He came as the incarnate deity. He taught, he lived perfectly, and now he was to be crucified and to rise again. 
And on this note, the disciples acknowledge that Jesus knows all things, and they, they believe, and they believe that He came from God. And this statement here in verse 31 brings on a gentle rebuke from Jesus. Such patience Jesus shows with His disciples. They were saying the right words, but still didn't know what was before them, nor the challenges that lie ahead. Peter, who had already been warned, was present and among the disciples. Who He's one of those who seems to flippantly be saying the right thing here. But again, the patient tenderness of Christ is remarkable because it wasn't that what they said was not true or even a reflection of what they believed. They simply were not aware of the gravity of the situation. Like a few years ago, um, we were in our, in our home, and those of you who live in the area have probably experienced this before, but there was a progression of gunshots. So there's three of them. So first one, trying to figure out if that's what you're hearing. The second one, you're thinking that's a little bit closer. The third, uh, we're close enough that I just yelled out, all right, everybody hit the floor. So we hit the floor and moments later, Blake, uh, my son, comes running out of his room with his little Nerf gun. And I'm thinking, what are you going to do with that? So obviously unaware of what was going on. C.H. Dodd says this, he said, the damping down of an enthusiastic confession of faith might seem surprising if we did not remember that it corresponds to a constant pattern, not only in this gospel, but elsewhere. It is part of the character of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence, catch this, not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them, and this they could never forget. So the magnitude of the moment is brought before them in verse 32. The hour has already come. It's here. It's, it's, it's time. And in verse 32, Jesus tells them, you will, you're, you're going to be scattered. You will leave me alone. They will leave Jesus but listen to what he says. I'm not alone. Who's with him? I'm not alone. The Father is with me. This is a remarkable statement because he's coming to that point where he will be forsaken by the Father. And yet Jesus is saying right here, I, I, you'll leave me, but I will not be alone. The Father is the one who is with me. Words such as these should give our souls a collective deep breath in trust. God's sovereign in suffering. He is present in suffering. And one day He will remove all suffering. This anonymous quote here, Christ must vacillate before the clinging soul can be endangered. This author here is speaking of hope, and he's encouraging the believer to cultivate this precious grace within himself. So for this purpose, diligently study Christ, His person, His work, and love, 
Each day, mount higher on the ladder of heavenly knowledge. The more you know, the more you will trust. Time will thus sweetly find its end, then hope shall reap its harvest and be swallowed up in never-ending reality. So as this final discourse comes to a close, Jesus has a fitting conclusion. He tells us, tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You are going to have tribulation, expect it. Peter picks this theme up later on and says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you as if something strange were happening to you. Paul to Timothy, indeed, if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Tribulation, persecution, Christians ought to expect. There's going to be trouble from the enemy. The prince of this world will do all he can to create turmoil. The enemy will do all he can to destroy your life and everyone connected with you. Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. The enemy will not stop with you. The enemy wants to destroy everything and everyone that is connected with Christ. First Peter 5, 8, he's prowling around looking for who he might devour. There's also trouble without, external trouble, trouble in this world. People are going to hate you as well. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this. When you sleep, remember you are resting on the battlefield. When you travel, suspect an ambush in every hedge. As mosquitoes are said to bite strangers more than natives, the trials will be sharpest to you. He's speaking in reference to followers of Christ. Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. There's going to be trouble within. Sometimes this is the most frustrating. It's like, okay, I get that, that there's going to be trouble with the enemy. I get that there's going to be trouble in the world, but like, really? I, I, as if the other two are not enough? Spurgeon, again, I think it's helpful. If you had no devil to tempt you, no enemies to fight you, and no world to ensnare you, you, will, you would still find in yourself enough evil to be a sore trial to you. So there's battle that wages in our inner man. But Jesus says, I've, I've spoken to you these things so that in me. In all likelihood, he's, he's picking up on John chapter 15. Remember in John chapter 15, Jesus hearkening back to this image, abide in me. Let my words abide in you. Abide in my love. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have hardship. You're going to have suffering. Abide in Christ. 
Because Jesus is the one who says, I have overcome the world. Has he, at this point when he says this, has he, has he risen from the dead yet? He hasn't even been handed over at this point. He hasn't been crucified at this point. But his power over sin and death is that certain. The two themes of this passage, joy and peace, have no bearing upon us apart from the resurrection of Christ. It's a theme of Paul in Romans chapter 8. And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The pastorally speaking, it's impossible for us to pray through our prayer directory on any given day and not note several members in this church who are dealing with suffering. All of us are. All of us in some measure have some really challenging things happening in life. And so we can, we can hear the words of Jesus and, and say, that's true. Yes, in this world we will have tribulation. But I want you to take heart and comfort. In Christ's finished work. So what was on the heart of Jesus? The conqueror was resolved to die and his resurrection would be the disciples and all other Christians' source of joy and peace. So take heart and comfort, dear loved ones. Christ is our savior and our joy and our peace. Not just in this Advent season, but in every season of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the closing hours of life for Jesus on earth before he was to die, that he took the opportunity to share with his disciples and with us that he is the source of joy and peace. And that we can have his joy and his peace through the finished work on the cross. And Father, we pray that this would strengthen us as we seek your face, as we pray and make petition to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, work in us that we are the kind of people who are known by your joy in us and your peace being demonstrated through us. 
We ask this in Christ's strong and mighty name. Amen.